We continue the shear in Navi. The last shear we spoke about the incident of Izevel, the wife of Achav, evil, vicious woman, queen who had killed the prophets, and how she in turn was killed. Her body was eaten up by the dogs, according to the curse placed upon her by Elia and Avi. Only a small part of her body remained for burial, the skull, the palms of her hands, and the feet. And this, the Gemara says, was due to the fact that she was blessed for one mitzvah she did. She used to go to weddings and there to participate in dancing, bringing simcha, happiness, to the chosen and kala. This mitzvah was so great that even an evil person like her merited having those organs of the body that participate in this, these movements were zechah, were privileged to burial. We spoke about the mitzvah, the importance of dancing and clapping hands, the palms that are used for clapping hands. And Harabinadal says that even if there is a heavenly decree, a very harsh decree that would bring Hasvashalom suffering to the Jews, tefillah, prayer, of course, can avoid that decree. But above all, there should be the kudim yamchas kaf. If, despite the decree, there is dancing and clapping of hands, the clapping of hands can drive away the evil of that gzeda, that harshness. The chiddush is to prove this. The amazing proof is that in the Shulchan Aruch, code of law, we find in Chaim, Simon Shilam Ches, chapter 338, discussion there as to whether it is permitted to clap hands on Shabbos. You're not allowed to use any musical instruments on Shabbos. That's breaking the Shabbos. And clapping hands is similar to playing an instrument, like playing a drum. Making any kind of noise, special sound, that would keep in tempo with music. Therefore, the din says clapping of hands is forbidden. This is based upon a Gemara, the Yushomi. Rabbi Meir was the leading light, the leading luminary of all the rabbis of the Gemara at the time after the passing of Rabbi Akiva. The Gemara says that Rabbeinu HaKodesh, Yudha Hanasi, had a wedding feast for his son. And at this feast in the yeshiva where this took place, Rabbi Meir came to take part in the celebration. But as he walked in, he overheard them clapping hands. And he turned his back and left. He said to be witness to Chilul Shabbos, desecration of the Shabbos, he turned and left. He ran. As he ran, his cape came off his head and the back of his neck was revealed. A tzaddik of that type is greater than an angel. And therefore, from the actual skin, there is a radiance that emanates. This is not too unusual. Not amazing because we find in the Torah about Moshe Rabbeinu ki koran ponov. The Torah itself testifies to the fact that the Jews could never look into the face of Moshe Rabbeinu because of the radiant, the blaze of light that came forth from his face. It was a heavenly light and the physical being could not look into that light. But Meir too was that holy and this light that emanated from the back of his neck, which was uncovered momentarily, this is the light that Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi saw. Yehuda Hanasi was the chief rabbi of the Sanhedrin. 
he was the chief rabbi of all the rabbis then. He was the one who compiled the Shas, six parts of the Mishnah, is the Mishnah. And of course, being the leading rabbi then, he said, he once stated that the reason I achieved this great height, I reached this important position as chief rabbi, is because once I was zecher to see even the back of the neck of Rabbi Meir. Had I seen his face, imagine to what heights I would have risen. That's a separate story in itself. We'll get to that during the Wednesday shiurim. The details in reference to the light of Rabbi Meir, of course, by the way, the Gemara says that his name was not really Rabbi Meir. The word Meir means to give forth light because he enlightened the eyes of the rabbis of the Gemara in the study of Tehra. The point of the story we bring out is that from there, the Shulchan Aruch derives that it is forbidden to clap hands on Shabbos. It is one of the acts on Shabbos that are forbidden, to make sounds. And so the law states emphatically in the Shulchan Aruch, you are not allowed to clap hands. Yet, despite this, the custom is, custom law today, is that if the clapping of the hands is for the sake of davening, while davening, to arouse oneself to greater kavana, to greater feeling, or especially while dancing, so mitzvah to dance, clap hands on Shabbos, then it is permissible to date the clap hands. So vital is this mitzvah that despite the, the Easter, the ordinance against it, it is permissible on Shabbos to clap hands. It is acceptable, it is advisable, and it is a mitzvah to do so. And of course, from this story of Achav's wife, we see proof, too, of its importance. Meanwhile, to get back to the story itself, as we said, Yehu was commissioned by Elisha Hanavi and told to wipe out the family of Achav, which he proceeded to do, in a very successful, complete manner. Now, he continued on. He sent to the nurses who were raising the sons of Achav. Achav, the king, had many wives and concubines. He had a total of 70 sons. He sent a message to the nurses, this the male nurses, those who were raising the sons, children of Achav, princes. He told them, I order you to kill these 70 sons, sever their heads, and send me the package of 70 heads. I want the clean cut, neat package made of 70 heads of the sons of Achav. Now, when these caretakers of Achav's children received the message, they were filled with fear. And they said, we have no chance to battle against Yehu, because if Yehu was strong enough to kill two kings, not just one, king of the ten tribes, the king of the two tribes of Israel, and surely we've got to accept this order and to fulfill it. So they proceeded to do this. They sent him this package he desired. And then Yehu called for a meeting with the elders of the Jews. He called them all together. And he said to them, I have a question to ask you now. I am looked upon as an assassin as what they call, he said, as they will call later on as a hitman, because I have killed two kings. Uh, you frown upon me, and yet 
Do you consider yourselves Sadiqim? You have killed 70. I've killed only two. So you're as much murderers as I am. The truth is, however, he said, neither of us can be considered murderers. We have simply fulfilled a mission commanded us by Hashem through Eliyahu the prophet, who foretold that this was going to happen. The curse upon Achav was that Achav's children, Achav's descendants, would be completely wiped out. There'd be no trace of Achav's descendants whatsoever. Therefore, he said, I'm going to complete this mission by killing not just Achav's children, but every member of his family. He proceeded to do this. He killed as many as he could find in that city. And also, while doing this, he also killed the relatives of Achazyohu there. Achazyohu, the king of the two tribes, Malchus Yehuda, because Achazyohu was a grandson of Achav also. And by relation, he was guilty. Abnasazal and Likute Halachas discusses this topic and says, note, note how we should not envy those who possess great power. There are dictators and kings who rule over nations or vast empires. And we simple, ordinary peasants envy the power they have power and wealth. The fact is that these leaders, these kings, are guilty of a crime to which there is no comparison, a crime for which there is not enough penalty of punishment existing in this world. The penalty must be carried on to the future world, as the Gemara states, that the kings of the different countries in the world, different lands, who invariably go to battle against each other. You'll never find an era in history where there were no wars. There always were wars, and in these wars, one or the other is the loser. In fact, both are losers, because both the victor and the vanquished suffer casualties, not the kings, but their men. The blood of every human being is precious. To kill one single human merits a death penalty. A king who has power and sends his army out to battle is considered guilty of murdering every one of the soldiers who dies in this battle. Now, how can we envy these kings when we see the results of their actions? They live in glory. What is their end? one of two things. Either they are assassinated and destroyed completely, or at best, if not so, then their children or third generation are wiped out, killed, the descendants are wiped out, as we see in the history of the kings of the ten tribes. Every so often, every other king did not die on his bed. He was assassinated, and then two, all his descendants were completely eradicated. Take the case of Achav, the wicked king. He was not killed by his servants. He lived out his time. His children went to the throne, but the fact remains that 
his children eventually were all wiped out. What kind of a future is that for anyone to have every one of his seed completely erased from this earth? This never happens to a layman, to an ordinary person. This does happen to royalty. So how can we envy them? Especially since, to add to this, the Gemara says, <coughs> that even if they are killed, and even if their family is wiped out, they must stand judgment in the heavenly court later on for every drop of blood they are guilty of spilling. Every soldier wounded or killed in battle goes on their record and they must pay for it. And therefore, how fortunate are those who do not carry the burden of royalty or a kingdom upon their head, whose conscience is clear the most they ever killed in their life might be a mosquito or two. But never have they, on their conscience, the fact that they are instrumental or directly guilty in mass murders, mass slaughter. This, of course, applies to kings, dictators, presidents, and so on. There are cases of battle for defense only that, too, is very rarely found. If, of course, it does exist, it's a mitzvah for one to defend oneself. There is no guilt there at all. There is also what is known as a mulchemes mitzvah, a war of attack, which is a mitzvah if this mitzvah comes directly from heaven. Command by Hashem, for example, to wipe out the tribe of Amalek. There, the opposite is true. The case of King Shoal, he was told to spill blood, kill, erase the memory of Amalek from off the face of the earth. There, because he had a slight pang of conscience, a degree of pity where he should not have had it, he lost his kingdom because of the fact that he had compassion on the evil king of Amalek. So that's called a Milchemes Mitzvah, a war which King David waged throughout his life against the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. That's a war of mitzvah, where it's a mitzvah to erase those who are against Hashem. Otherwise, there is no excuse for war. And it is something that, for a long time to come, those who are guilty causing, bringing about these battles, will have to pay the ultimate penalty. Now, Yehu, of course, was doing this. In this case, the killings were commanded by Elisha Hanavi. He was doing what was right. So he continued on. He went to the capital city of Shemunayin. He took with him his friend, Yenadov ben Rechov. Yehu, as we said, was a valiant warrior, one who injected fear into his opposition. He was extremely brave, courageous, and able. So he said to his friend Yenadav, Watch now how I shall avenge the honor of Hashem, the Kanoi. He went to Hashem and there he killed the rest of the relatives and friends of Achav, those who were accomplices in spreading idol worship. Then he said, Now I shall proceed to really bring satisfaction to heaven. He called the Jews together, 
remember these ten tribes were saturated with Aveda Zoda, idol worship. He made an announcement, a proclamation. He said, till now you have had King Achav and the like. King Achav worshipped idols. The main idol was the Baal. He said, Achav served the Baal a little. Yehu, that's himself, he said, is going to serve the Baal much more. I'm going to show you how to really worship idols. This, of course, brought about a reaction of, favorable reaction of part of the Jews. We're happy to hear this. They were so deeply immersed, embedded in idol worship. This was a trick on Yehu's part. So he said, I hereby make a proclamation. We're going to have a very special a celebration, a holiday in honor of the Baal. And we want that every single one of the Baal's prophets, the priests of the Baal, shall assemble in the temple of the Baal. I want everyone there, not one shall be missing. All came. This giant temple was filled completely, standing room only. Then Achav again announced that those who come should be dressed in the special priestly garments of the Baal. Only those wearing those garments are to be admitted. This too was fulfilled. And then he said, now search among yourselves for spies might be some who believe in Hashem, who worship Hashem. Weed out those spies and get them out of this building immediately. Search among yourselves and recognize if there's one that you don't know, get him out. They did this until he was positive. There was no doubt whatsoever that the entire building was filled with the worshippers, the priests of the Baal. Then he took 80 of his strongest men, stationed them outside, and said to them, Now, you 80 are responsible. This building is filled. Anyone that gets out alive, it's your life for his. When they heard Yehu say this, they knew he meant that. I go inside and clean up that mess in there. In fact, make a mess of it. Mess means a corpse. Make a mess out of every single one in this place. See that they're all completely wiped out. The 80 chosen selected soldiers of Yehu completed this task to perfection. So Yehu destroyed and wiped out every one of the Baal's prophets and priests. The prophet Yena, remember that Yona we have is a short cipher dealing with Yona and the whale or Yona the fish. We've mentioned time and again the importance of Yena aside from that fact Yena was that originally the child brought back to life of the Anavi. Prophet Yenonah came to Yehu and told him because of the fact that he had fulfilled the command of Hashem. When Hashem says, give charity, have pity for the fellow human being, and then Hashem says, kill, there, is, there should be no difference in the way a person fulfills these two commands. When Hashem says, give life to, give kindness to, or give death to, a person should accept Hashem's command in the same vein. Because, he said, you went with, into this with such relish. You've completely fulfilled the command of Hashem in this case. For this, not only you shall reign over the Jews, but four generations, which is a rare number, four of your generations shall reign too over the Jews. Now, despite all this, Yehu would seem was good. He destroyed the Baals, 
followers, yet, despite the message he received from the Navi, he could not bring himself to true faith in Hashem. He still maintained idol worship throughout the Jews. He had the power as king to eliminate all idol worship, yet he did not. He kept this idol worship going, and for this, he was punished with Chazoel, the powerful king of Aram. You recall, memory is functioning slightly, you recall in the last year that Elisha Hanavi cried when he told Chazoel he'd become king of Aram because he could foresee the trouble he's going to make for the Jews. Chazoel denied this at the time, but we see throughout that Chazoel, the king of Aram, and his son Ben-Hadad, whom he named after the king whom he had assassinated, both oppressed the Jews very seriously, in this case because Yehu committed the sin of sustaining the idols of a deserter throughout, he had trouble from Chazel constantly throughout his reign. He reigned for a period of 28 years. It is important to note a sidelight on this story. The Gemara says, how is it possible very important point. How is it possible that Yehu, who had seen these miracles, he'd been given a message from Elisha Hanavi through his messenger Yonah, the prophet Yonah, told that he would become king. This was fulfilled. He had seen the other miracles of Elisha Hanavi. He had received a further message from Hashem congratulating him, commending him for what he did. How come that he turned to idol worship? very illogical, doesn't sound feasible, what possible gain could he have had, or what could have led him to idol worship? The Lord answers, the tongue of a person is a messenger of life or death. A person's tongue, if it speaks evil, Lashon Hara, slander, can cause death to the recipient, the party about which it is spoken, especially to the bearer, to the one that speaks it. That's how bad Lashon Hara is. A person's tongue can bring life. The tree of life is the Taita. A person's tongue in speaking to Hashem and Tefillah can bring a cure to any sickness or disease, can bring good fortune to the person. A person's tongue can trap a person too. We find in this case how one must guard his words carefully. A slip of a tongue can bring about a person's downfall. Here Abinazel says, Abinazel warns that joking itself is a wrong. You're not supposed to make jokes or mock anything that is important, especially that which is holy. You are allowed to joke about the opposite of holiness, non, non-Jewish items, those atheistic items. The joke about something which is holy is forbidden, especially under no conditions is a person to speak frivolously, lightly, about Hashem, about a mitzvah, about the Torah, about anything holy. If he does, if he says, for example, for a joke, he's going to eat unkosher food, jokingly, this can lead him 
the tongue can trap him into fulfilling this word. He goes, The power of the tongue is so great that even the lowest person in the world can sometimes carry a prophecy on his tongue. His words will be fulfilled. So a person should always say, <coughs> speak words of purity. And that's why, too, the Benazal Sefimidus says, a person sometimes falls into a depressed state of mind where he, he has to show him, God forbid, has a, for a momentary uh, has a, for a skepticism, a slight doubt in faith, then the instant cure for it is to state aloud, just to say the words, I believe firmly, implicitly in Hashem, in the Torah, and this can drag him out of this depressed state. Because just saying the words alone are that important. Even if in his heart he doesn't actually feel it. This is the power of the tongue. By the same token, a person says, has to show him he does not accept, he does not believe, even if he's the greatest believer, the biggest tzaddik, this can drag him down. In the case of Yehu, the Gemara says, note, he said for a good reason, for a good cause, to mislead, to draw into a trap the followers, the leaders of the worshippers of the Baal, the idol Baal. So he said, Achav has worshipped the Baal a little compared to Yehu who will worship him a lot. But though this was said in jest, this was said without really meaning it seriously, yet his tongue trapped him and had to come true. Because he dared to make a statement like that openly, something which is next to action is the tongue. The Zaydeh Kodesh says that everything in existence must go through three processes. First, the planning process, the brain, and then person, for example, plans to build a home. In his mind, he conjures up a vision of what the house is supposed to look like. Then he works on the building of the house itself. But in between these two, there must be the speech process. Even if it, the words are inaudible, or he imagines he, nothing is spoken, yet there must be, to a degree, speech, words must be said. No action can come after thought, unless there are words in the middle of this, between these two. So in this case, we see that the thought, thinking about idol worship, is considered a sin. A person who thinks matters that are of atheism is guilty of idol worship. Hidhud of a disorder, to think of worshiping idols, is about as evil as the actual idol worship. And since speech is even closer to action than thought, therefore the words of Yehu were that incriminating, even though they were said in jest, that this brought about his downfall in that eventually he did turn to idol worship, and therefore he was, his reign was not really a successful one. This Thigmar shows an example of a warning as to how a person must guard his tongue and again, the way that Shimon Yechoyzal said, we discussed this in the Gemara class, Shimon Yechoyzal, 
who said that if he could have had his opinion voiced at the time of creation, he would have advised heaven to create a person a little differently. Instead of creating a person with two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, and one mouth, he would have said, in all fairness, give a person two mouths. Imagine if a person can daven and learn at the same time. Use two mouths, he can cover so much more ground. Then Abshimei Choyazar reversed himself and said, I take that back. Because I see how much evil is spoken with one mouth. Imagine if people had two mouths, how much harm they would do in this world. He said, heaven knew better than me and left the person with one mouth, which even in most cases there is too much. Because Hashem, in order to prevent a person from speaking evil, built, erected two walls to stop the tongue which snakes its way out of the mouth and speaks with the slander Lashnar of the original snake, the serpent. And for this Hashem built a wall of bone, the teeth, and a wall of flesh, the lips, to stop the snake from coming out. And yet, despite these two walls, tongue keeps coming out and getting into trouble. So that's why again the, the Gemara says a person must guard his tongue because the, in, within the tongue lies the power of life and death and the Tzor L'Shoncho guard one's tongue. Now the Torah says further that the mother of Ahaziahu remember that Ahaziahu was the king of the two tribes whom Yehu had killed too. His mother, unfortunately, was Atalia, the daughter of Achav. Being the daughter of the wicked king Achav, she had Achav's blood in her, and she was that same type. The mother of Achazioh, Achazioh was now killed. She decided this was her chance to become the queen mother. And so she went herself, herself killed all of the children of her own son Ahaziah, thereby took over the kingdom, became queen of the two tribes of Israel, and ruled as queen, ruled supreme. However, Torah says that Ahaziah's sister succeeded in rescuing from the hands of Atalia one small child. Yoash, the son of Ahaziah, was saved by Ahaziah's sister. He was taken away, and she kept him hidden in the base of Mikdash. There, she gave him to Yehoyada HaKohen, Yehoyada the Kohen Gadol. He was spirited away there, kept hidden in secret by Yehoyada. This lasted for a period of six years. Six years' time, Ataya reigned while Yoash slowly grew up. The seventh year, Yoyada finally revealed this to the leading generals of the army. He summoned them, told them in a secret meeting, I'm letting you know right now that the prince is alive. Yoash, the son of our former king, is alive. The time has come to groom him, prepare him for the throne. We must have you as the officers of the army, Prepare your men to defend the king with their lives. And so he set up a guard, 24-hour guard, with three shifts, 
built eight-hour shifts in those days too. They must have been part of a union. They had these three shifts around the clock to guard the place where the prince was stationed. And at a given moment, he told the officers to prepare for the revelation of Yoash as king. The declaration throughout. At that moment, Yoash was taken out openly. And Yehoyada the Kohen Gadol placed the crown upon his head, placed the Sefer Torah in his arms, and he had them all cry out simultaneously, Yechi HaMelech, long live King Yoash. This sound celebration reached the ears of Atalia. She came running with her personal bodyguard to the entrance of the base of Mikdosh, and she cried out, this is a revolt, kill them. But as Yehoyada had already prepared for this, this event, he had gotten the loyalty of the army. So in turn, he ordered the army now to kill Atalia. And that was the end of Queen Atalia. Note again, those who live by the sword perish by the sword. In this case, Atalia, the blood relation, the daughter of Achav, did reign for six years, ended up after having killed the sons of Achazia, she herself too died by the sword. Yoash took over the kingdom and in this case he led, he lived for, he reigned for 40 years and during which time he practically eradicated every vestige, every trace of, of a disorder. It's true that during the two tribes there was less of a disorder, idol worship than among the ten tribes, but there's still was a lot of it prevalent. He wiped out most of the Avedas order there, and he worked hard to perfect, to improve the condition of the Beis Hamikdash, the Holy Temple, and things seemed to go well. However, at one time, Chazoel, our old villain from Aram, Syria, Syrians, Ben Haddad, came to attack Yo, uh, this king, Yoash, and in order to rescue himself, he offered Hazael a bribe. He took him into the base of Mikdash and gave him all the, practically all of the wealth, the royal treasures that were found there, the gold, silver, the loot that was there. He gave this royal ransom to Hazael to leave them in peace. Hazael left, Yehoash remained as king, and then, after a while, Yehoyada, the Kohen Gadol, died. And this caused a complete turn of events in history. The other member was the one, the Kohen Gadol, who had taken care of, had spent all his time in guarding Yehoash as a child, bringing him back to the throne. When he died, his son, Zechariah, became Kohen Godot. Zechariah was not just a Kohen Godot, he was also a Navi, a prophet. He was a Navi Vikohen, a combination of both. Extremely holy person. It's a holy prophet and a Kohen Godot, the only person who could enter into the Kodesh Kodesh and the Holy of Holies, Anyam Kippur. And at that time, as soon as Yehuda passed away, Yoash suddenly was overcome with a desire for idol worship.
So he turned back to Avedizoro. He went into it with extremely strong movement. He went into it himself and brought this idol worship back among the Jews, spread it throughout. Zechariah, the Navi and Kaingadol, was very strong in his accusations against the king, and he warned the king of impending doom. The king took this insult with anger very furiously, and he ordered the death of Zechariah. With this, Zechariah, a Navi, Kohen Gadol was killed. Igor says that this incident remained for a long time to come. He was killed, he was buried, but the blood at that spot remained. It was impossible to get rid of that blood. Not only did the blood refuse to be seeped into the ground, it remained above the ground, and it kept on seething and boiling, bubbling, as though seeking revenge. Later on in history, we'll come to this point, discussing this point more. Meanwhile, the Torah tells us that the act of Yoash could not go unpunished. And so one day, Hazael, the king of Aram, came to attack the Jews again. In battle, Yoash was wounded. And carried home to the palace, two of his servants killed him, assassinated him. This is not unusual. What was unusual, the Gemara tells us, was the fact that these two were not Jews. They were Jews in a sense. They were sons of converts. One's mother was from the tribe of Ammon. The other one was from the tribe of Moab. The Gemara says this was poetic justice because there's one thing that Hashem Kaviachal despises, and that is a person who is ungrateful. In this case, we find that Avraham Avinu, you recall the story when the four kings attacked the five kings. The story in the Chumash, one of the five kings was the king of the city of Sidon. The city of Sidon lived the nephew of Avraham Avinu, Lot. When this happened, Lot was taken captive. Avraham Avinu set out alone with his servant to do battle against those four kings. This was attempting the impossible. And yet, with the help of Hashem, he was successful. He destroyed the four kings, and he brought back Lot from captivity actually saving Lot's life. Now, if you recall afterward, Lot's daughters committed incest and they gave birth to two sons. These two sons were the heads of those two tribes, Ammon and Moab. These two tribes, Ammon and Moab, should have been grateful, should have recalled the fact that their ancestor, the head, their family head, the head of the family tree, Lot, whose life was saved by Avram Avinu, they should have acknowledged this and repaid good for this act. Instead, they set out to destroy the descendants of Avram Avinu, children of Abraham, 
by hiring Bilam Harosha to curse them, to cause their downfall. It means that they were the symbol of Kofui Teva, persons who were ungrateful. Therefore, following that same, the same token, here, those who were Kofuye Teva, those who possessed that despicable trait of ingratitude, now turned about these two servants of Yawash. They were the ones instrumental in killing Yawash because he showed too his lack of gratitude to Yehoyada. Yehoyada, the Kohen Gadol who saved his life, who elevated him to the rank of king, and he turned and killed Yehoyada's son, Zechariah Hanavi. So that this was poetic justice. Yawash, the ungrateful one, being killed by descendants of Amon Amorov, who the first was to show a lack of gratitude. Still, again, the Torah teaches us the point that a person should always be careful to show his gratitude, gratefulness for favors done to him. There are a lot of types of characteristics that are uh, not commendable, that are evil. One of the most disliked, despised, is a kofu teva one who does not recognize, acknowledge a favor done, and returns evil instead of good. When Yoash was killed, Yoash's son, Amatsya, became king. Meanwhile, Yoachaz, the son of Yehu, took over the kingdom after Yehu. Remember Yehu, the king of the ten tribes, reigned for 28 years, Yoachaz took over, and Yoyachaz suffered a great deal at the hands of Chazoel, the king of Aram, the prophecy of Elisha becoming true. Because Chazoel raised his son, Ben-Hadad, a typical Syrian name from the gates of Syria, to terrorize, to oppress the Jews.